at our ministry meetings about the vision for the church, some exciting things that God is doing now, and it's always just a wonderful time of worship and fellowship, and so whether you are serving a ministry or not, you're invited tonight at 6.30. Parents, bring your kids directly to childcare. So that's different than a normal ministry meeting where the children worship with us. We will be going directly to childcare this evening at 6.30 p.m. Okay. First John. We are going through First John chapter 3. Chapter by chapter, verse by verse, I'm going to ask you to stand up. I'm going to stay seated, but you can stand up, and I will be reading from verse 4 to verse 8, and then skipping down to verse 16. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. If you need a Bible, by the way, raise your hand. Actually, this morning, very important to have a Bible because we're actually going to be turning back uh, in the book of Genesis as well. And there's something powerful that happens when you read the Word of God, when you get it in front of you, when you, those words, they really become imprinted on your mind. First John chapter 3, verse 4, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him, little children. Let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, made known, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now down to verse 16. By this we know love, because he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for opening our eyes, Lord, that we can open this Bible and we can be led into understanding, Lord, I remember as a young adult, opening this book and being very confused. I can remember as a young adult opening this book and falling asleep, Lord. And yet you have stirred up my heart, our hearts, to understanding, to know you more, to bless you with our lives. That's what we want to do, Lord. I pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit would fill us this morning, Bring us to the place of great joy, which you have called us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you may be seated. 
So, verse 4 of John, 1 John chapter 3 says, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. So that word sin is a word that you don't hear very much anymore. Around 30 or 40 years ago, people started thinking it wasn't a really cool word to use. People started thinking sin. I mean, sin, the very word seems to imply that there's a God and that we owe something to him. So they stopped using it. They stopped using the word sin. That was 30 or 40 years ago. Today, it's not unusual to find a person who doesn't even know what the word means. It's not their fault. It's just they've never heard it. Sin. What does it mean? And part of what we love to do here at Calvary Chapel is to reintroduce some of these words into people's vocabulary that have been uh, lost. And you know it's a privilege to do that. It really is. It's a privilege to do that. You know it's a big, big deal to take that word sin out of the American vocabulary. That's a big deal. Because sin itself, the Bible says, is a big deal. Sin is what broke man's relationship with God. Sin is what broke man's relationship with God. Let's look at this verse um, from Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4. Do we have that verse? It says, Behold, all souls are mine. This is God speaking in Ezekiel in the Old Testament. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. And the soul of soul who sins shall die, it says. Here's what Jesus says. That's the Old Testament. And this is the New Testament. Jesus in John chapter 8, verse uh, 24, Jesus says this. If you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So I would say that's a pretty big deal pretty big deal thing that the word sin has been taken out of our vocabulary because sin's a big deal. It's what destroyed our relationship with God. And if we die in our sins, Jesus says we'll be separated from God forever. Man, did someone play a trick on us taking that word out of the vocabulary. So what is it anyway? Well, verse 4 of 1 John 3 says sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Verse 4, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness means no law. It means no authority. Lawlessness is that place where um, a man is where they are a law unto themselves. Each man, each woman makes up his own law and is not subject to anyone's law, most particularly God's law, lawlessness. 
I'm my own law. Verse 4 says, sin is lawlessness. So when you commit a sin, the Bible says, actually back there in 1 John 1, 8, it says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So when, but when you commit a sin, when you lie, when you cheat or you steal or you have anger, hatred or unforgiveness in your heart really towards anybody, you're making a statement that you're not subject to God's law. Because he has specifically commanded, don't do that thing that you're doing. That's lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Next verse, verse 5, 1 John chapter 3, says this. And you know that he, speaking of Jesus, was manifested, meaning he was made known, to take away our sins. To take away our lawlessness is what he means. To take that away. And in him, there is no sin. That's a remarkable thing. The Bible says it's, it's true of Jesus. In him, there was no sin. And in him, our lawlessness is taken away. Verse 6 says, whoever abides in him does not sin. We talked about that word abide last week. It means, it means to be one with. It means to live with. The picture we are given throughout the Bible is the same as really marriage. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And, and that's at the very beginning of the Bible. And from that point onward... That picture of marriage is actually used to, to represent or describe or be a symbol of our relationship between God and man, between Jesus and you, if you, if you have a relationship with him. You abide, that word abide, very important. Verse 6 says, whoever abides in him, whoever's married to Jesus, does not sin, does not practice sin does not have a lifestyle of sin, a lifestyle of lawlessness, a lifestyle where, well, I am not subject to a man's authority or God's authority. I'm a law unto myself. The Bible says he who abides in him, he who lives in him, he who's, who's asked Jesus into their life and has that relationship with him, they don't continue in sin. Then the end of verse 6 says this, whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. I don't miss that. Christianity is not a religion. Jesus hated religion. He spent most of his time preaching against religion. Religion is man-made laws which you follow good enough and hard enough in order to get to God. The Bible says, no, that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is a relationship a relationship. Christianity is about, the end of verse 6 says, seeing God and knowing God. Seeing Jesus and knowing Jesus. Notice it says, it says there, whoever sins has neither seen him nor known 
him. So Christianity is not knowing things about Jesus. Christianity is about knowing him. Did everyone catch that? That small change in words there? Christianity is not, not knowing things about Jesus. Christianity is about actually knowing him. I know about the governor of Massachusetts. Charlie Baker? I think that's his name. But I don't know him. I don't, well, but, she, but Sue does. She knows him. She graduated from where? Boston College from, with him. Uh, okay, high school. She, so she actually knows him. But most of us don't. Everyone knows facts about Jesus. Not everyone knows Jesus. Christianity is about knowing him. But it says, whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Meaning, if they really, really, really have asked him into their life, they've seen him and they've known him. Of course, this is not talking about seeing him physically. But as you get to know the Lord, as you get to know God, how he operates, how he loves, how he moves, how he heals, how he overrules, how he intervenes. You'll see him at work in your life and all around you. Whoever sins has neither, whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Because once you do, you're not going to want to continue in that lifestyle. Verse 7. Little children. This is John's an old man at this time, and he's addressing his readers as little children. Let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he, Jesus, is righteous. See, he was having all kinds of problems at that time with people faking it. People faking it, faking that they were Christians, saying they were Christians but behaving another way. John says, no, it doesn't work like that. If they really have seen him and known him, they would be acting the way They are, they do, that they have seen him and know him. They would be acting like that. Verse 8. Going right along here. We're going to be spending a little time on this verse. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, was made known, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now, I grew up in churches, among other places. Grew up west of the city of Boston. Kind of churches. We didn't believe in the devil. They didn't believe in hell. They didn't believe... And a lot of things in the Bible. They were too smart for that. If you were to mention the devil, the kind of church that I grew up in, there's a good chance that even the pastor would laugh at you. The devil? That's the kind of churches that I grew up in. But the Word of God teaches, and I didn't start reading the Bible until I was 24, it teaches that Jesus himself 
believed in the devil. He taught that there was one. And the word of God couldn't be any clearer that there was a devil. And, and, and just prior to me, when I was 24, coming to the Lord, wow, I was opening up my, uh, my life to, the, to really to the demonic realm through drugs and, and other practices. And oh man, did I have an experience with the devil such that I was more convinced there was a devil than there was a God. Since then, as a pastor, particularly traveling abroad to Haiti, and I told you about an experience recently, oh man, have I seen manifestations of the devil. But the word of God really is good enough. I'm at that point in my life. If the Bible says it, that's good enough. It's true. It'll be made true eventually. You'll see it eventually. It'll be known to manifest eventually. And, and Jesus... Um, teaches himself that there's a devil. The Bible says that the devil was an angel by the name of Lucifer who was created by God, who was with God, worshiping him, honoring him, covering the throne of God until he rebelled and he was cast out of heaven. Look at these verses from Ezekiel. Do we have those verses? This is from Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 12 through 16. And this is God through the prophet Ezekiel speaking to Lucifer, to Satan, to the devil. You were the seal of perfection, meaning you were created perfect, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. You were the anointed cherub. Now, cherub was, it's a kind of angel that, that is about and over the throne of God. You were the anointed cherub who covers. You were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created until iniquity, meaning evil or rebellion, was found in you. Therefore, I cast you out as a profane thing, as an evil thing, as a wicked thing, out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, meaning angel that actually, in the Bible, cherubs actually, um, were, were they covered, the, the, they covered the throne of God from the midst of the fiery stones. It says that he was cast out from the presence of God. So when John says in verse 8 of 1 John 3, where he says, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The idea there is this. If you're in a life of sin, if you're here this morning, there's lawlessness in your life. It was surely not God who's, it's not God who's leading you in that way, in that path. God didn't introduce sin into the world. Satan did. Now, here's a quote from the book of Luke, chapter 10, verse 18. Now, this is Jesus himself speaking. Jesus said to them, speaking to his disciples, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, referring to that very thing in Ezekiel chapter 28. So, listen, the next time you, someone says, I don't believe in the devil, I'm too smart for that, just ask them, are you smarter than Jesus? Verse 8 goes on to say, middle of verse 8, 1 John 3, it says, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy 
the works of the devil. So what are the works of the devil? What are the works of the devil? Well, let's go back to the very beginning of your Bible. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, and we will read about the works of the devil. The book of Revelation, it says that the serpent referred to, in Genesis chapter 3, that, that it, was, it, was, it was Satan himself working through the serpent, speaking through him. It says, in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now the serpent, it's the very beginning of your Bible, chapter 3, Genesis. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said that you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Let me put up the NIV version up there. NIV says, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree? In the garden? Did God really, really say that? Did he? It was clear that God did. Go back one chapter to chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 15. Chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 15, says this. Then God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend it, and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. God had said that. What is the work of the devil? But did God really say that? Did, does, does the word of God really say that? Let's go back to Genesis 3, verse 2. How did the woman respond to the serpent? It says, and the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Verse 4, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Verse 5, For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate it. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. So what do we learn from that? 
but the work of the devil. Remember, we're in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. What are the works of the devil? Lawlessness. To get us to the point, to get man to the point, where they don't think that they should be subject to any law, particularly God's law. So what the serpent told Eve, man, it sounded right. It really did. It sounded right. It felt right. It looked right. And what? She chose to believe what he told her. We are taught in the Bible that, that, that believing is a choice, believe it or not. It's a choice. We choose to believe one thing or another. So what are the works of the devil? Lawlessness. To stir up lawlessness. Verse 4 uses the word sin. Lawlessness is that place, again, in your life where each man or woman, they become a law unto themselves. Lawlessness is, again, it's that place that each man, each woman makes up their own law. It's not subject to anyone else's law. The devil stirs that up. That's the work of the devil. If, and, and, and so where does he bring us? Where, where does the devil bring a man or woman? If, if I take God's law seriously, I'm going to be the most miserable man on planet Earth. No more fun, no more good times. I will be bored out of my mind. And what's all this law about? But that just, God just wants to control me. He just wants another one of those creepy followers. He doesn't care about me and my happiness. That's the work of the devil, to stir up lawlessness, to stir up suspicion, suspicion of God, to stir up lack of trust. God doesn't love me. He's just doing this to control me. If I give my life to Jesus Christ, that will be the end of my life. Not true. Jesus says in John 10.10, what does he say? He says, I have come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. Oh man, do I have 25 years of walking with the Lord where I have learned this is the truest verse in the Bible. They're all true, but man, it's this one true. The abundant life. Oh, man, was the devil wrong. The works of the devil to stir up lawlessness. And there's an end goal to his work, and that is to prevent a man or woman from coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ by which a man or woman is saved, is saved for all eternity. Did God really say, did he really say that marriage is exclusively between one man and one woman? Did he really say that? No. Come on, they love each other. All we need is love. That's the only thing that's important. Did he really say that in his word? Well, yeah, he did. I hope you're still in Genesis because we're going to continue reading there. Genesis chapter 2, verse 23. It says, and Adam said, he's, he's, he's speaking of 
his wife. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. In the Hebrew, that's isha, a woman. Not to be confused with man, which is ish, the Hebrew word ish. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The word there is not wife. It's woman, ish, Hebrew. In the original language, it's woman. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his woman, isha, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Marriage, sex, a beautiful thing created by God. Something within marriage, sex, something in marriage to be delighted in and certainly not to be ashamed of. Something to enjoy as a gift from God. Jesus, by the way, quotes these very same verses himself in Matthew 19. So when I began walking with the Lord when I was 24 years old, I would say there were two sins that characterized my life. One was anger. I've shared some of the stories with you. Anger, really, which was violent anger. It's a violent guy. I have a big scar right here on my chin that I got in my senior year of college. Who else is fighting people in their senior year of college? Well, in 1985, that's what I was doing. <laughs> the other sin was sexual immorality. Sex outside of marriage. That was me. And I'm so thankful, though, that when I was 22 or 23 years old, I began to attend a church which taught the Word of God. And their teaching confronted my sexual sin. I am so, so thankful for that. Why? Because my relationship with God was at stake. My eternity was at stake. Sex outside of marriage is against God's law and remaining in that lifestyle remaining in it and holding on to it and saying it's okay has eternal consequences for you, Steve. And God will judge that lifestyle. I didn't grow up in churches that taught that. I did not. Did God really say that he would judge sex outside of marriage? Never heard anything like that growing up. It's just the kind of churches I grew up in. But I'm so thankful that in my early 20s, I was led to a church that did. Did God really say, did he really say that marriage is exclusively between one man and one woman? Did he really say that? Yes, he did. And I would be doing you a terrible disservice by telling you anything other than that because God God will judge those who embrace a marriage that is anything other than a marriage between one man and a woman. I'm thankful for Calvary Chapel. The first Calvary Chapel I went to 20 years ago, the wife of the pastor had come out of the lesbian lifestyle. And I can tell you, she, and we just had her up recently here to speak, 
she would not tell you that that lifestyle was heading in the right direction. She was gloriously saved from it. And we've seen testimony after testimony. Or my, the church that I went to in Miami, 20% of the, of the people in the church were coming out of that lifestyle or in it. But they wanted something better. I'm glad that the Bible teaches truth. Listen, we're not smarter than God. And we're not being progressive and modern by saying, by redefining marriage. Do you realize the Greeks tried this? They tried this. Go and look at your history books. I'm a history nerd. I was a history major in college. I plead with my kids, at least one of the five, will you please be a history major? And they tell me, what are you, crazy? I'm not going to study history. I love history. But you go back and you read a history of the Greek empire and you read a history of the Roman Empire, they tried all this, all this new progressive stuff. And guess what happened? Those societies not exploded, they imploded. They died from within. Why? Because they thought they could redefine what God's Word said. Let's go back to 1 John chapter 3. It says, Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil, lawlessness. I know that when I came to Jesus Christ, that lawlessness, which was so much a part of my life, it was destroyed by Jesus Christ. No longer did I continue to, when I, you know, disagreed with someone on a basketball court, and this is not what happened, by the way, I got on Thursday. <laughs> Did I start punching someone out? That was just not, the Jesus Christ destroyed that. Why? The Bible says that Jesus knocks on the door of your heart, of every man's heart, whether they're 5, 25, 50, or 105. If they open up that door of their heart, he will come in, and it says he'll eat with them. What's that talking about? He's gonna, he's, it means abiding, fellowship, and he'll change them. It says the Holy Spirit comes in. And destroys that lawlessness. And he also destroyed that part of me which couldn't get out of that lifestyle of sex outside of marriage. Now the Bible says that we stumble in many ways. And a Christian may fall into any sin in this whole Bible. There's grace there. Praise the Lord. There's forgiveness there. When you're, Jesus is in your heart, he forgives you of all sins, past, present, and future. But he's given us that victory over lawlessness. But not only that. One thing that, to me, was the most shocking thing that happened to me when I became a Christian. I went from being suspicious of the law to not trusting the law 
to loving it. To loving it. Wow, this stuff's good. I love this. You mean I can like obey the law and stop pumping into my mind these, this terrible music with these words that are so awful? I just found it and, and that it'll, it'll really clean out my mind? Yes, I can do that. I began to love it. And, and sometimes I didn't even, I, I, I went into it saying, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to follow this law. I, I don't get it. This doesn't look fun to me or easy or something that's going to lead to joy, but I'm going to do it. But he proved himself so right. I went from lawlessness to loving the law. I love Psalm 119. If you're ever depressed or discouraged, get alone, open up Psalm 119, and by the end of that psalm, and it's a really long one, I believe the joy will come in. So many times it has. But it has a lot to say about this subject. And it's where I am today. And it's where all of us can be in Christ because Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. What are the works? Lawlessness. Psalm 119 verse 47 says this, I will delight myself in your commandments, which I love. Psalm 119 verse 48 says, My hands also will lift up your commandments, which I love. The next one, Psalm 119.70, I delight in your law. The next one, Psalm 119.97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 119.97, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. That's Psalm 119.103. And then Psalm 119.127, therefore I love your commandments more than gold. Yes, than fine gold. There's another one earlier on, I think it's verse 47, where David uh, simply says this, I run in the path of your commands. And I love that. There's that freedom and that liberty and that strength to, to, to just to run in the commandments of God and to love them. Now, we, we live in a world um, where there is lawlessness and and not everyone um, agrees with the word of God. So how do we live in a world like that? How do we live in a world, uh, a world that even from the top down, from the Supreme Court to the president of the country, disagrees very strongly with what we believe? What do we do? We love. That's what we do. We stand firm. And we love. Look at verse, six, verse 16 of 1 John 3. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. It's interesting, back in verse 10, 
It says this, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Now that's a pretty extraordinary statement. You are not a child of God if you don't love. Specifically here, if you don't love your brother. In verse 16, it says, by this we know love. What does love look like? It's, it's we look at Jesus, he laid down his life for us. There's one thing about love. You can't fake it. This part of Christianity you can't fake. You can't fake love. Look at Jesus' statement in Luke chapter 6. This is the love that every single follower of Jesus Christ is called to. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. You can't fake that. If you don't have the Spirit of God in your life, you can't. And, and John is telling us, this is how we'll be, we know if we're the real deal, if we do this. But, but I say to you, who here, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. Now, some of the people who may disagree with us, they may not be our enemies. Can we, can we, Sean, can we keep that up there? They may not be our enemies. They're our friends, the people who work for us, the people we love. But the rule is the same. If they don't like something that you believe, you stand firm in what you believe, you speak what you believe, and you love them. You love them. Love your enemies. That, that includes people who treat you like an enemy. That could be your spouse. That could be your boss. It could be your coworker, your roommate. Love them. In 1 John, it defines law, it, it, love. It says, die for them. How do we know love? Verse 16 of John 3 says, be, uh, he, be, by this, we know love because he laid down his life for us. That's laying down your life for your enemy, the person who is treating you like an enemy. That's love. You can't fake that, John says. But yet at the same time, that's the test of whether you're really a Christian or not. Love. Love your enemies, this is Jesus speaking, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. We're going to um, close out the service now with communion. If you've been asked to pray, would you please uh, come up, if, you, if the worship team could come up. We're just going to celebrate communion at this time. What does the communion represent? Communion started on the night before Jesus was crucified, where, where Jesus had his last supper with the disciples. And he took the cup, and the cup represented his blood. And he took the bread, and the bread represented his, what would be, would be his broken body. He took those out, and he, and he said... When you gather together after this point, drink this cup and eat this bread 
and do it in remembrance of me. Now, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians expands on that and says, before you take this cup, you need to examine yourself. You need to examine yourself. One, are you in the faith? Because Jesus gave it to those who had asked him into their lives. The communion is for children of God. First John chapter 3, verse 1 says, Behold what manner of love that Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And the Bible says there's only one thing you can do to be, become a children of God. You, and it's believing what Jesus did for you in his life. He lived a perfect life to credit to your account. He died as a substitute on the cross because the Bible says the penalty for sin, for lawlessness, is death. But he died on the cross um, for you as a substitute. And then he was raised from the dead and he ascended into heaven in order to pour out new life to you. The Bible says you believe that. And you make him your Lord, your master, your God, you're a child of God. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 12, you become a, uh, uh, 1 John um, chapter 1 verse 12, you become a child of God not by doing something, but by believing something. Because no one can do good enough to become a child of God. It's a free gift. The Bible says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the worship team is going to begin playing. If you've never become a child of God, if you've never asked Jesus into your life, there's going to be people up here uh, praying. You can uh, pray with them. And I'm going to be up here as well. You guys need my uh, stand? Okay. I'm going to be up here as well. But if you also have, if there's something else on your mind, a stress, maybe there's a, the Bible says that it's interesting that um, that wonderful worship song that the worship team sang just before we, uh, we just before this, this message that I gave, it's, I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back. And, you know, because we live in fallen bodies, we can enter this life where We've been freed from lawlessness, but we can, two or three years later, we can pull a, a piece of lawlessness back into our life where we're not, we're not obeying God in some area of our life. life. Guess what? There's, there's grace for that. There's forgiveness for that. But there's also, this is a time, communion is a time just to pray about that because you don't want to, to go and, and, and share the cup or you don't want to uh, share the, the, the bread which represent what Jesus did on the cross, but yet be denying what, what that cross did for you. The Bible calls that trampling on the cross. You don't want to do that. You don't want to trample on the cross. Come up and we'll pray through it with you. The Bible also says even stress and anxiety in Christ we can let go. If there's, a, if there's a, a, an area of your life of anxiety or stress, the cross and the resurrection... And Jesus' work on the cross freed you from having to be in bondage. And if you, if you have some area of anxiety or stress, you just want to pray through with us before communion. Please come up to pray. Otherwise, 
Um, while the worship team is praying, please go to the back. There's cups, there's bread, and you return to your seats and we'll have communion together. Thank you.